Looking at the last words of Jesus, last week we started with the word of forgiveness when he said, when he made the prayer, Father, forgive them to those who are there participating in his crucifixion. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What an incredible thing that his ministry began, his earthly ministry began and concluded with prayer. While he's on the cross, he makes these seven short statements. Three of them are found in John. Three are in Luke, Luke only, John only, and then one is both in Matthew and Mark. Now, sometimes people ask questions like, well, how come they didn't all record all seven of the statements? It's something like this. There, there were people, different people involved in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and particularly these four people involved in writing the Gospels, and they wrote the Gospel from their perspective, number one, I think, also, secondly, to an audience that they were trying to reach, and, and we can talk about that later in a different time. They also, though, may have not seen exactly the same thing from their perspective. Let me give you a real simple illustration. I've done this before physically with a box, but let's say there's a box here in front of me, an imaginary box right now, but on this side of the box, there's a big red dot. So I ask the folks over here, what do you see on the box? And you say, a red dot. Well, on this side over here, there's a blue dot. So I ask the people over here, what color dot do you see on the box? They say, a blue dot. On this side, there's a green dot. And I ask the people over here, what do you see? They say, a green dot. And on this side right here, there's a yellow dot. So I ask the people behind me, what do you see? They say, yellow dot. Well, the people who see the red dot are yelling, no, 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 it's red. And the people who are yelling from the back, they're saying, no, 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 it's yellow. And so all these arguments going on, it's not because anyone is lying, and it's not because they're, they're, they're confused or they're perceiving it wrong. It's that they're looking from a different angle. So let me give you an example. When you read Matthew and Mark, thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. By the way, men, if you were here yesterday, we had an incredible men's breakfast and the food was the best breakfast you can get in Tulsa, anywhere around. And it's coming up again in April, so be sure and join us for that one. It may have been. I don't know. This is a little bit of speculation. I don't want to camp here because I don't want to build theology on speculation. But it may have been that Matthew or Mark heard part of what was going on. And then maybe they backed off a little bit or they were in a different place. At the start of the crucifixion, there are several people around and basically they are all mocking Jesus being executed with him are two criminals they are both mocking Jesus at the start then something happens partway through I'll talk about it a little bit later today and one of them repents and asks Jesus for help now only Luke records that part so what happened it's very likely that Luke heard that part of it. Maybe Matthew and, and, and Mark, who got his words from Peter, maybe they didn't hear that part, or, or maybe it just didn't register with them as strong. Maybe they were overwhelmed at the start. I don't know why different ones put different things in. When you get to heaven, you can have an interview and ask them, why did you put this in? Why did you put this out? I do know different personalities are going to highlight different things. There is no contradiction. There's only addition so we see the additional thoughts that come through Luke that tell us what happened here in Luke chapter 23. 
And the words that are given says, today you will be with me in paradise. Next week we'll look at where Jesus says to John, woman, behold your son, or to Mary, behold, to, to John, woman, behold your son in John 19. And then we'll look at my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Matthew 27. Then the words, I thirst from John 19. Then it is finished from John 19 also. And Father, into your hands I commend my spirit in Luke 23. And I'll try to put those all together. It's interesting to note in the life of Jesus, you remember where he started out? He was born where? Bethlehem in what? A stable, placed in a manger, a feeding trough. He was born among the animals. That's how he came into the world. And he was crucified among the criminals. That's how he left the world. What a tragedy that we did not treat the Lord and Savior better than we treated him. He was born into poverty. He was born in a place for animals, and he was executed among the criminals. But that was all to fulfill the words of Isaiah 53. In verse 12, it says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now that was written by Isaiah 700 years before Christ was born. Isn't it amazing how if you didn't even know who I was talking about, you knew who I was talking about. Isaiah wrote this description, Isaiah 53. I encourage you to maybe do that in your weekly Bible reading this week. And it's interesting to see that even while experiencing an excruciating death, Jesus was concerned with the needs of another. It's amazing what pain does to people. It has different impacts on different people in different ways. Some people, when pain comes, they, they become angry, they yell, they scream. Others become quiet and they become uh, more introspective in the way that they look at life. We see here an example of one man who, the, as the pain came in, all he could see from Jesus was an escape to his problem. There are people like that today. But there was another man who saw that Jesus was the one who could help him. And Jesus saw himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The conversation that goes on here and the words that are spoken show the generosity of the kindness of Jesus. Can I tell you today, I hope that word gets implanted in your heart, that Jesus is abundant in his kindness toward those who call upon him. He is good. Please get that into your spirit. Don't see, see him as some historical figure that's way out in the distance in the past. Don't see him simply even as one who, uh, who covered our sins but disconnected from us. He acts in kindness and in closeness in proximity to us. The three crosses that we see here represent three different things for the one who would not repent, for the one who would not turn toward Christ. He rejected Christ instead of receiving the blessing. The one on the other side showed a spirit of repentance and a desire for reconciliation and receiving 
the goodness of God. And Jesus Christ in the middle is a picture of redemption. The thief who repents exemplifies for us how to be saved. Let me look at it with you together this morning. The criminal is a representative for all people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. In an interesting, the and us, I think probably should be all in bold letters. Because the emphasis and the interest here really is not so much on saving yourself, but hey, what can you do for me? But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are, you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. As you go back up the chapter a little bit in verse 32, you'll see the word that was given for the men. And what's talked about here is the word criminal. If you go back to the Greek language, that word means one who is evil. Not one who inadvertently broke the law but one who with evil intent took advantage of other people. And I don't know how you feel, but I think we're probably in the same boat with this. It really stirs up my, my anger when I hear about someone who maliciously abuses another person and takes advantage of someone. It's so disheartening. People should not treat people like that. And yet these were men who had done evil. But notice he admits his sinful condition. Now there's a place for all of us where we have to come to. And it's a place where we recognize who we are in our own fullness of ourselves. What's interesting about this man is he's there hanging on a cross hours away from death. He cannot talk about, well, Lord, here's what I've already done for you. Look at my good deeds. He did not have any. He cannot say, Lord, when I get done with this, I'm going to really serve you well. And I think it helps us to see that, to understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's nothing that we can earn. It is nothing that we can do. This man asked for forgiveness and acceptance. He says, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? What brought about the change from when he was part of the mockery and when he reviled Christ? What brought the change around? Nothing outward, even looking at Jesus. By all outward appearance, at this time, Jesus appears the logical mind to, to the physical signs, he's nailed to a cross just like the others. How can that guy help you out? There's nothing there. At this time, nothing supernatural had occurred. The darkness had not rolled in. There had not been the thunder. Nothing had happened of any significance to make this man believe. I'm saying that because sometimes I hear people say like this, things of this nature. Well, if God would just do whatever, then I would believe. Do you know that God doesn't operate according to our commands? And you believe based on who he is. It's a step of faith. 
Before conversion, this man had no regard for God or the laws of God. And after conversion, he would have no opportunity to serve the Lord. But there is a freedom and empowerment that can only be gained as we realize that salvation comes from God. I did not earn it. I cannot keep it. There's nothing that I can do. So so we get into all these quagmire of, of, of difficult thoughts sometimes because we overthink the process. And sometimes people say something like this. Some people push for, well, we know you're saved and salvation occurs. You keep saved by, by doing good. Let me make clear what the Bible says. We are saved by grace. Every one of us in the room, it doesn't matter how much you've studied the Bible, doesn't matter how much you've prayed, doesn't matter how much money you've given, doesn't matter how many good deeds you've done, doesn't matter what you've done, you can never be saved by your deeds. You are saved by grace. Let me help you out. Not only are you saved by grace, you are kept by grace. It is the grace of God that sustains you. It is the grace of God that keeps you. I don't, I don't somehow keep my salvation alive because I do the right things. It's God's grace. So then some people erroneously think because of that truth, they reach an erroneous conclusion and they say, well, works don't really matter then. No, that's not true. Good works are not the root of our salvation. How many of you know what roots are in a tree? It's where the tree gets life. It's where the source is. What happens if the roots get damaged to the tree? Somebody help me out. Dead tree. Dead tree. If the root's gone, the tree is dead. The root of our salvation is the grace of God. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. It is the grace of God. We stand in that truth because of of the revelation of the Holy Spirit. We are saved by grace. But now notice this. The fruit of our salvation is good works. That means that when we are saved, the natural production that comes through us is that we have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. The fruit is produced by the Spirit, and the fruit of our good works is what causes people to recognize the faith that we have in God. It's not the cause of our salvation. It is the result of our salvation. So therefore, we are anxious and zealous to do good works, not to earn salvation, but in gratitude for salvation. Now, here's why good works are important, though. Let me ask you a real simple question. Think about it with me. What is more important for a tree? Is it the root or is it the fruit? It's the root. You kill the root, what happens to the tree? It's dead. But if you got a tree and one year it doesn't produce or one year the fruit's not that good, how many good farmers do I got in the house here? 
What is your thought? Your hope, your desire is it'll come back next year. Maybe you have someone come look at that's a specialist and see what's going on if there's something you need to do. But as long as the root is healthy, it will produce fruit again. If the root is not good, well, you'll never have fruit. Now, what's the problem with that for us? We can see fruit, but we can't see root because root's underground. How many of you ever looked at a tree and you thought it looked healthy from a distance? But the closer you got to it, you realize it's not a very healthy tree. I've been out in the woods before, seen a tree over, you know, a few, few yards away, a few several yards away, and you look at it and you go, well, that's a beautiful tree. And the closer you get it, you go, it's not so pretty. <laughs> closer I get, the more I realize it's actually kind of diseased, and it's probably not going to be around for very long. You can't see it because you can't see the root. It's important that we recognize that the root of our salvation is the grace of God, but good works are the fruit of salvation. Look at what the man did. He declared the lordship of Jesus. When he calls out to Christ, says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's declaring that Jesus is Lord. He has a divine awareness of his depraved and lost condition and recognizes his hope is in Jesus. He expressed faith in Jesus. It takes a lot of faith to look at a man on a cross and go, hey, when you get things going, I want to be connected with you, okay? Don't forget me. Most of us will look at a man on a cross and say, is there anything I can do to help you alleviate your suffering? Is there anything I can do to help expedite your death so that you don't have to suffer for so long? But this guy has enough faith, it's quite a bit of faith, to look at a man on a cross who looks just like every other man and say, hey, when we get through this, don't forget me. How many of you know that's quite a bit of faith right there? Now notice how divine grace exceeds human expectation all the time. Here's what the man says. The man just simply says to Jesus, remember me. And Jesus doesn't say, I'm just not going to, I'm going to do more than remember you. I'm going to tell you that you're going to be with me. You're not just going to be in my mind. You're going to be with me. You will be with me. Next, the guy says, when you are empowered, when you come into your kingdom, wherever that is out in the future, whenever it comes together for you, remember me. Jesus said, you will be with me today. And he says, uh, when you come into your kingdom, and, and the picture I have in my mind is somebody saying, hey, when you come into your kingdom, when you're empowered, when you have everything going on, if there's some little job somewhere that I can do, you got some little thing that I could be a part of, don't forget about me. I would make a good gardener. And Jesus says to him, blowing away his request, today you will be with me in paradise. What an incredible promise from the Lord. As we look at this, the word of Christ brings hope to every believer, telling us this, salvation is immediate today. Sometimes people feel like they have to get better. Sometimes they feel like they have to improve. We come to Christ in our sin, in our wickedness, and he transforms us and makes us to be a child of God through faith in him. Salvation is certain. You will be. You will be. Not maybe. 
But Jesus said, today you will be. How many of you like when someone gives you that kind of clarity, that kind of certainty? (coughs) Salvation is also a relationship. You will be with me. And salvation is forever in paradise. Now, I know there's, there's a lot of debate, and I can't clean it all up today. And I think there are many sufficient passages that warn us to be careful in our life, to be alert, to be aware, because we can be deceived. We can be led astray. But I think there's also a lot of scripture that would teach us very clearly that the power of salvation that is available through faith in Jesus Christ is strong. It is not weak. And if we pursue him and we walk toward him, we can walk in faith knowing that he will keep us. There's a doctrine that's often called eternal security and taken to its fullest extent, as some would do, is demonic in its origin. To say that once you become a Christian, you can go do anything you want to do, have it commit any sin you want to commit, and you can just live a wild and, and uh, godless life, and it doesn't matter because you got saved, and so it's all good with Jesus is an absolute um, disregard for Scripture. It's not true. It's not true. But I think far too often, too many believers have allowed the devil to bring that thought into our hearts to give us what I call eternal. Instead of believing in eternal security, we believe almost in eternal insecurity. Never really know for sure if I'm going to make it or not. Hope that, pray for me that I'll make it. Hopefully I can make it. Hopefully I'll get in. It's going to be hard and tough, and I'm not sure. Right now, I don't think it's going to happen, but maybe can. I don't know. And I, 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 I'm being a little bit facetious here, but that's kind of the way that, that I heard some people when I was growing up talk about their faith in Christ. It's like they weren't sure if they were saved or not. Jesus teaches us here that there is a certainty to salvation. Now, we need to walk in a transformed life and walk toward becoming the person that that he has designed us to be, and we need to fulfill the purpose of God in our life, but he tells us that we can be saved, and it doesn't mean that our salvation is, is... gives us a license to sin. God forbids what Paul says when, he, when he's talking to the Romans. He says, God forbid that you continue to sin because of God's grace because grace does not lead us toward sin. Grace leads us toward Jesus. Here's what I believe and here's what I, I know that I stand in the humility of this reality that I am saved because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and it's not my works that saved me, it's his work on the cross and I'm gonna hold securely to his hand, I'm gonna draw near to him, I'm gonna follow after him and when I am doing that, then the words of Roman 8 take on special meaning for me. Who can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Angels can't do it. Demons can't do it. Doesn't matter my location. Doesn't matter my situation. I am secure in him because I'm following him with my whole heart. 
The grace of God is abundant. It's strong enough that it reaches to this man on the cross who has no past to, to speak of in any positive light, who has no future, but he says, right now at this moment, I put my faith in you. How can you know you're saved? It's not by feelings. Feelings are the most fickle thing that we have. I think of feelings, many, many illustrations, but one is I think about the beginning of a game, a sporting event, and both teams are over there chanting and yelling, we're going to win, we're going to win, we're going to win. And I just know, this, this isn't no spiritual discernment, this is just life. I just know one of you are wrong. Well, we feel like we're going to win. Now, let me just give a little side note here, just a little interject, a little reality humor or whatever. Now, if you ever go to a game and you hear a team at the front going, we just hope we don't get hurt today, don't pick that team to win. But typically, people are yelling, we're going to win, we're going to win, we're going to win. Their feelings are, we're going to win, but feelings are fickle. Feelings change. They're not something you can build your life on. And it's not through your mind. The way I would describe this is it's not that faith is illogical. It's super logical. It's above normal thinking to a divine thinking. But logically, why would a guy on the cross ask another guy on the cross, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Hey, if you want help, you ought to be talking to one of the soldiers down there who might could somehow get you down and maybe help you. What's the guy nailed to the tree going to do for you? There's nothing logical about calling out to him for help, but there was an awareness of the Spirit, and here's how we all come to Christ. It is through faith. It is by believing in your heart. It is allowing the Spirit of God to bring revelation, opening your heart, opening your mind, and receiving from him. It will flood all of those things. It will touch your feelings. It will touch your mind. It will touch your soul. That's why I say it's supra. It's above and beyond those things. It's not illogical. It's supralogical. It's more than. It covers over logic. But sometimes in our arrogance, we think my personal logic, my personal cognitive ability is stronger than anything else in the world. So therefore, I am the all-knowing one. I remember when I was in algebra back in school, and I have a very mathematical mind, very factual mind. So it was easy for me. As a matter of fact, it was too easy for me. It's a true story. And when we get in algebra, I could figure out the answers just by looking at it. And I'd figure out the answer. And they'd say, well, you need to learn how to do the process to get there. I, I don't. Because <laughs> I know the answer already. And I would give the answer, and she was, that's correct. How did you figure that out? I said, I just know. That was true. And then we got in the second week of algebra. And I didn't know as much anymore. <laughs> then we got in the third week, and I said, can we go back, and could you tell me that first thing again? 
because I thought I really knew a whole lot because I could figure it out. I mean, there were a lot of questions and a lot of problems on the board. And I solved every one of them that first week in my mind because I could figure out and deduce where we're at. And it's like, oh, that makes sense to me. And I thought, this piece of cake. I know this. And we kind of laugh right now, but how often do we approach life like that? I got this figured out. I know, I know where I'm going. You know that if God did not give you if he just took his hand off you for a second, everything he's put in you, everything he's given you, you wouldn't have sense enough to know how to walk out of this room. And if we approach God with this arrogance of, I know I've got it, I don't need anybody's help, I don't need, see, l- listen to me, here is, here is the key. Ron Hood, I remember us talking about this years ago. Here is the key. You've got to have revelation. You've got to let the Holy Spirit speak into your heart. It's like a weekly thing for me as I approach this time together right now. I'm going, God, please show up. Because my words alone will never convince anybody of anything. I'm going to do my best to study. I'm going to try to understand. I'm going to try to bring insight But unless you show up, all it creates are debates and arguments. But when the Holy Spirit shows up, it brings transformation. We've got to go beyond those things. Here's how you can know that you're saved. 1 John 5, 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Five things you got to know. Number one, know you're going to face God when you die. Notice there's going to be a day of judgment. Know that's going to happen. The Bible makes it very clear. It's appointed on a man to die, and after that comes the judgment. Know that you have sinned against God, for all have sinned. Everybody say all. Didn't say some, didn't say a few, didn't say most. Everyone has sinned. Everyone needs their sins covered by Jesus. Know that Jesus was not an ordinary man or even just a good man. Not even just a holy man. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus alone can save you. Jesus alone died for you. And that through the grace of God, you can be saved. Know that Jesus promises to save everyone that calls on him. Romans 10, 13, for everyone, say everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Regarding our, these, what's called, referred to here, we call it the deathbed conversion, that last minute the conversion with minutes left in your life. And some people, that's their, that's their plan. Well, I'm going to just kind of live whatever I want to do and, and my own thing. And uh, hopefully, as I get near death, when it's kind of near the end, then I'll repent and get right with God, get to go to heaven. And then I'll, I'll, that way I'll have the best of both worlds. One Puritan saint said it this way. It's in your notes, a little different wording, but same thought said it this way, there is one such case recorded in God's word that none need despair 
that God can save you at any moment of your life. But they go on to say, but there's only one in Scripture that none may presume. Great Bible writer of years gone by said it this way, it is the height of foolishness to postpone salvation until the last moments of life. I agree with that for two reasons. Number one, you're forfeiting the blessings of God right now. Say People say sometimes, well, if I become a Christian, I have to give up a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, Galatians 5 talks about that. You give up bitterness, rage, and anger, and instead you receive love, joy, and peace. I think that's a pretty good exchange. When you come to Christ, you receive fullness of life. You're shortchanging yourself if you walk away in your sins. Not only that, but a second reason why I believe it's foolish to wait until the end of life to get saved is you don't know when death will come. As I look at life, I remember, seems like not that long ago, but when people used to call me the young preacher. Thank you for not all laughing at that. A couple of you did, and I'm a little bit hurt, but not bad. I'm noticing today as I'm looking at the stage in the worship time, everybody up here is younger than me. Some only by a little bit, but you see how life goes and how life changes. But in my life, I've seen funerals for infants, teenagers, young adults, middle-aged adults, and older people. We don't know when death's coming. And it would, it would do us well to be prepared. Later in the year, I'm going to do a series on the end times and talk about how the Bible speaks about life and what's coming. And I think that right now, in my opinion, we very well might be headed on that last few seconds, last few minutes of the clock of eternity. It could be very quick. But here's what I know. Even if that doesn't transpire in that path, life's going to end for some of us very soon. And we need to make the most of this opportunity. We need to make sure that we're ready when death comes. John 1, 12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Would you bow your heads with me all across the room? And if you're watching online, would you just join me in this moment of personal introspection, examining your own life? Would you join me in today in making sure 
that you are committed as a follower of Jesus Christ to be grateful for his blessings, to be obedient to his instruction, to live your life to follow him. How many of you would join me right now, whether it's for the first time or you've been following the Lord for 50 years or longer? How many of you would join me right now and say, I want to live my life for Jesus. I'm thankful for salvation that comes through his grace and it is, it is accessed by my faith in him. And today, I want to make a declaration. I'm a follower of Jesus and my faith is in him. Would you raise your hand real high all across the room? Maybe you did that for the first time today or maybe... It's been a while since you've had connection and communion with the Lord. And I pray that you'll just continue a path of following him. Would you stand with me, please? If you need prayer today, I want to invite you to come. If it's for salvation, a spiritual need, if it's for any other need in life, a financial need, if it's for a, a physical need, a health issue, or whatever it is, guidance or direction, provision of God, if you have a need, would you come to the front? And we want to pray with you whatever your need might be right now. We want to pray together. Father, I thank you that your word tells us that if we will believe in our heart that you raised Jesus from the dead and we will declare with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. I thank you, God. That's not just a mechanical process but it is an expression of our personhood. It's who we are. It's what we believe. It's what we think. It's what we say. And Lord, I pray you would help us to have faith that rises above every situation. That God, you would help us to draw near to you, to follow you every day that we live. And that when this life concludes, we will hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace that reached out to a man had, who had no past to brag about, no future to promise, but he simply reached out to you in faith and you said, today, you will be with me in paradise. We thank you for it. We give you praise in Jesus' name. One more thing before we sing this song of worship to God. Regarding this situation, here's what Spurgeon said about this man, about the, the, the thief on the cross. He said, this man had breakfast with the devil, met Christ before noon, and then had supper in paradise. That's a pretty good day, isn't it? That's a pretty good day. That's what he offers to all of us. Now we think about that guy and he got saved and then went to glory right after that. I gotta be honest, I, I've known some people who've thought this way and I, maybe I've thought a time or two about some, I wish I had just pray the prayer on them and say, take them now Jesus while they're, they're good. So why doesn't he just take us once we get saved and we're good, let's go to heaven. Well, it's not because he's trying to 
make you better. You, you're saved because you're justified, not because you're, you're, you're fully sanctified in your life. And we're sanctified through Christ, but we're growing in that in a daily walk. But you're saved by the justification. So why does he leave you here? Not to improve you and make you better per se, but so that you can serve others. So that you can finish the work he's called the church to do. As long as you're breathing, you got work. As long as you're living, there's something you need to be doing. Open your eyes and look to the fields for they are white and ripe for harvest. Let God use you and use me to share the gospel, the good news of salvation for all who we encounter. There's work to do. Would you lift your voice in worship to God and you say, God, you are so good. You're so good. You're worthy of all praise.